0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, part two of a series of podcasts by Dr. Ariel Glynn of Leiden University and Donald Fallon of University College Dublin. The series, Hidden Dublin, From the Monto to Little Jerusalem, is based on a UCD adult education lifelong learning course of the same name, which Donal and Ariel created. The course is open to all members of the public. Its next run begins on the 23rd of February 2016. For more details, including information on how to enrol, go to ucd.ie forward slash adult ed. This episode looks at health and housing in Dublin. So you're listening to the podcast series from the Adult Education course at University College Dublin, which is Hidden Dublin uh, from the Monto to Little Jerusalem. Uh, and this is an adult education course that was created by, uh, by myself, Donald Fallon. I'm a historian in University College Dublin, primarily interested in the in the social history of Dublin, uh, and Dr Ariel Glynn, who largely was interested in, in migration. Uh, and we came together and created this class, which we kind of hoped would shine a light on some forgotten aspects and some overlooked aspects of Dublin's history. Now, one class we teach looks at health and housing in Dublin historically. And this is a hugely important way and a very kind of insightful way of looking at Dublin in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with Mary Daly from UCD. She said that when you, know, when you look at working-class housing, you're looking at virtually all aspects of the city's economic and social structure. Housing is related to income and employment, to the geographical organisation of the city, and the matters of health and sanitation. Now, One thing we touch on over the course of, of this class, I suppose, is the great, the great disparity in Dublin between the very poor and the very wealthy. And when you look at housing and when you look at health, you get a sense of the class divisions in the city and just how pronounced and how profound they were. Uh, And we also like to bring in accounts of Dublin from people that were there, people that saw Dublin, be it Benjamin Franklin, be it Frederick Douglass, or other visitors to the city, uh, who were often shocked by the extreme poverty and the extreme division in in Dublin society.
1: And, Errol, you have a great quote to start things off. Yeah, well, in 1853, the summer of 1853... A writer named George Augustus Sala was um, sent by Charles Dickens to Dublin to do various pieces on dublin and he, he talks about how you know on his arrival he 's struck by what a quote a magnificent city in the midst of some of the most beautiful scenery in the world so he 's touching upon what you know we discussed during the the course how dublin is is quite a divided city on the one hand. You know, you have these incredible pieces of architecture like the Royal Exchange, what later what what is now the City Hall, the Customs House. But on the other extreme, he, he talked about when he kind of stumbled across and um, the Coombe and around the Liberties, he saw a very different world there. And it, you know, because he was talking about how you know you can wander around Dublin for days without seeing a drunken man. Yet when he came to Bull Alley, he he talked about a very narrow and filthy little bulkheaded avenue of butchers' stalls. And, you know, he was revulsed by um, the the stench, the puddles of blood gathering around uh, the the area, you know, from these butchers. And he he talked about the fading glory of St. Patrick's Cathedral. So he he talked about it being a venerable, majestic building, a chaste and elegant example of the most glorious period of pointed Gothic architecture. But then he, he talks about how, you know, it, with its great tower and noble proportion, it dominates the city, but it stand, stands here as an anomaly, a discrepancy, an almost unused fame, unreverenced, unsympathised with, unhonoured, disavowed, disliked. And, you know, he, he talks about some of the issues that were going on in Dublin at the time, some of, you know, the dirt and, and the, the, the quality of housing. You know, and, and yeah, you have to remember around this time, there are a lot of there are various epidemics in the city. Mm. So, in the 18, early 1830s, the late 1840s, 1850s, again there there are huge cholera mm. epidemics. So, because what's happening is that it's a port. Dublin is a port and it's in constant contact with Liverpool and other cities. So it's kind of vulnerable to British epidemics. But unlike Britain, its sanitation is mm. is is staying. You know. At very poor levels, so you see that um, mortality rates, for example, in of of infants under one years of age in in um, in London and in England and Wales are 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 r- declining rapidly in the early ni- early twentieth century, the the late nineteenth century. But in Dublin, they're rising much slower. So Dublin, you know, and this is where we hear. About such issues as you know, Dublin's mortality rate being as bad as Calcutta, and you know, being one of the worst in the in, in Europe at the time, and, and it's true to many extents. But you, you, I suppose you have to compare it with similar cities like Liverpool, like Glasgow, and but even there, it's it's still quite pronounced that Dublin seems to be more diseased than its counterparts, and 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 you see. You see it in all these cholera epidemics. In, you have typhoid in 1879. You have a measles outbreak in the late 1890s. You have scarlet fever around the same time, and mm. you know TB, which you know until the 1940s, 1950s is a constant killer. Simple things like diarrhea are, are are you know having a huge effect on the city's poor, especially, and you know when you think about Dublin uh, and song, you know Molly Malone, she died of a fever. Mm-hmm. You know, because she's probably eating these mollusks, yeah, and <laughs> these the, cockles and mussels. The downright denial by many medical
0: figures at the time of the contagious nature of disease is quite astonishing. No one seems to make the connection, the very obvious connection, that, you know, people are dying because of the conditions they're living in, that many of these diseases that are wiping out people are contagious and infectious. And it's not really until Charles Cameron comes along uh, and he makes the blindingly you know obvious uh, connection between housing conditions in the city and the shockingly high infant mortality rates. Uh, Cameron, I think, is is one of the most overlooked characters in the history of Dublin. If anyone deserves a statue in the city, it's him. Uh, and he's an unlikely hero for Dublin. You know, Charles Cameron comes from a unionist background. Uh, he's, he's a Freemason. He has the very unusual honour, actually, of being one of the only employees of Dublin Corporation who ever had the freedom of the city uh, awarded to him. But he is making the point in the 1870s and the 1880s and the 1890s that you know, you're seeing such high infant mortality rates in Dublin because of the nature of housing in the city. James Connolly, who wouldn't share many political views or any political views with Charles Cameron, becomes a great admirer of his work on the interests of public health. And he quotes Cameron often. Uh, he quotes him pretty famously, he says, "...I've always maintained that the comparatively high debt rate of Dublin is mainly due to the large number of the very poor who reside in it and reside together." Amongst the poor in every town, the debt rate is much higher than it is amongst the higher middle classes. But Dublin has an unduly large population. Sorry, that Dublin has an unduly large population. It's proved in several ways, but chiefly by the fact that an unusually large number of families occupy only a single room each. Uh, and Cameron believes that this is the problem, you know, that it's the, it's the crammed living conditions mm-hmm. of the city that's contributing to the spread of infectious disease.
1: Uh, taken up in that, you know, when you look at the mortality of children, um, of young children between one and five years of age per 1,000. So you're looking at some of the figures provided in Mary Daly's book, which The Deposed Capital, which is very much uh, was prominent in our course. It, by, when you look at it by class, in 1905, a, um, I think a labourer's kid is something like t- 12 or 15 times more likely to die than a, someone in the professional classes. Middle classes, a bit, you know, a high, higher mortality than the professional classes, but still very low. Artisans, again, better than the labourers, but still uh, quite high. But the labourers really stand out. That class is such a, an issue when it comes to health and housing.
0: What's incredible about class is that these people are living on top of each other. The very poor and the very rich are living right on top of each other. Uh, Cameron, for example, Charles Cameron, famously, he brings uh, Prince Albert Edward around the slums of Dublin. He's here in 1885. Uh, and he doesn't have to go too far. You know, Albert Edward's being wined and dined in Dublin Castle. Uh, and, and he walks him around the neighbouring slums like in, in, in the very vicinity, Golden Lane, right beside Dublin Castle. And Albert Edward is absolutely horrified by what he sees. But this is happening literally within spitting distance uh, of Dublin Castle. So the, the poor and the very rich are living right on top of one another. And that's something I find remarkable. Uh, not like today where you, you have areas of the city that we define as working class, middle class, you know, there's more layers in Irish society and there's an onion, of course, lower middle the blah, blah, blah. But in, in, in the, the 19th century... Although
1: rarely mentioned in Irish history and Irish society, yeah. you know, that there's this kind of, I don't know, this, this myth that Ireland is less class-centric than, than Britain. But really, when you, when you dig down...
0: Oh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an intensely class-divided society. But it's incredible when you're looking at, at health in the city that people are dying of diarrhoea in Golden Lane and they're right beside Dublin Castle (laughs) where huge banquets are taking place. It's an incredible thing. It's the size of the city. Dublin has always been... uh, It's a small city. And and that's one thing I find so interesting about this period of time. The disparity is not between different areas of the city. It's between different streets in the same area of the city.
1: Yeah, well, just... This is going to be touching, I suppose, on um, uh, another podcast where we talk about immigration in the city, but something that, that... Where this is reflected is actually if you're looking at uh, Jewish families um, in the kind of what we see is Portobello area around South Circular Road um, today, they had actually much better uh, mortality rates, their their cleanliness levels, Mm. you know, because of cultural factors were much better than the Irish. Um, they're Irish neighbors, so you know you talk about how sometimes different streets, things were going on, but this was like in the same streets because mm. of of different cultures. They they actually were um, weren't seeing the ravages of some of these epidemics that we we talk about.
0: It, it's worth as well kind of defining, like you know, what what is the working class? <laughs> you know, who are these people that are that are, are dying of infectious disease in the nineteenth century and the early twentieth century? And they're, they're a lot broader than people might think. People that are living in Tenement Dublin, you know, we look, for example, at, a, at Henrietta Street, the 1901 census. And among other things, there's a binder, book binding finisher, fishmonger, ladies' nurse, bridal stitcher, coach trimmer, van driver, iron roofer, housekeeper, plumber, butler, brewery labourer, uh, and general labourer. That's the one that keeps coming up. Uh, and that's a problem in that, you know, people in Dublin, general labourers work when they're required they don't have fixed hours. They're bringing back irregular paychecks. They can't afford to move up in the world, and thus they're stuck in, they're stuck in tenement squalor as a result of that kind of irregular work. Many people in Dublin aren't unemployed, but they're definitely underemployed, and that traps people really in, in in tenement conditions. That means they can't move above their station. So the people we're talking about in this class, you know, the the people that are that are dying as a result of infectious diseases, the people that are living in tenements, they're a very broad section of society. Like in Henrietta Street, as I just said, they range from post office clerks to, to fishmongers to general labourers.
1: Mm. And I suppose it's important to point out again when we're talking about Henrietta Street and the censuses that you see people, you know, Church of Ireland people in these in these houses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the tenements. You know, you, okay. you have people like the likes of Sean O'Casey that is not completely... Uh, divided between, you know, Church of Ireland therefore means middle class are well off, that it, it is quite mixed in that sense, but uh, another aspect, uh, and again probably highlighting what how that area declined was the fact that there was one or two houses on the 1901 census in Henrietta Street that were still housing barristers, you know, mm. that, and they, they occupied the whole House just with servants and cooks, you know. So you might have ten or twelve in one house, but then next door you might have one hundred. Yeah, over it's, it's shocking.
0: Like the the nineteen oh one census, like for that street alone lists one hundred and forty one families, eight hundred and ninety seven people, which is just mind blowing. Like when you think about it, almost almost a thousand people living in that tiny little street alone. Uh, like like many streets in Dublin in, in this period. Really, it's, it's the story of, believe it or not, like the story of Henrietta Street is really the story of Alderman Joseph Mead, who was a former Lord Mayor of Dublin, uh, and he was buying up houses in Henrietta Street in the 19th century and essentially subdividing them, you know, stripping them of much of their valuable interiors, selling fireplaces at auction, for example, in London. But in the 1890s he's responsible for subdividing many of these houses and for, for, for turning a single home into a potential home for 15, 16 families. So what's interesting about Henrietta Street is, is that he is a former member of Dublin Corporation.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: and you find this, you find this. Uh, this emerges again in 1913 there was a housing crisis in the city that local politicians, members of Dublin Corporation who are supposed to be addressing the problem of tenement Dublin are
1: profiteering from the problem of tenement Dublin. They're often landlords, they come from the lower middle classes themselves And just, you touched upon earlier Charles Cameron and I just remember reading some of some of the <laughs> initiatives he brought in that I think children would be paid you know, a, a small amount to bring, if they brought in a huge jar of blue bottles.
0: Yeah, yeah, famously. yeah. You'd have, you you produce these uh, special paper bags to catch flies, and you got three pence to anyone, you know, if you could fill a bag. But it was calculated that it would actually take about 6,000 flies. To do so. <laughs> so, so no one was ever going to actually manage to do it, but nonetheless it kind of drew
1: attention. Uh, to a yeah. problem and
0: that, that was probably his main intention to be honest
1: and it, I suppose it highlights some of the issues that we're talking about that, you know, there must have been flies everywhere mm. around you know these simple things but it also shows that he, his heart was in the right place that he was trying to solve some of these issues you know so he, he got rid of uh, the Ablana, this, mm-hmm. this boat that w- was docked in the in the, the Liffey where basically all the waste uh, w- would be brought Every day, uh, uh, and we and would just—I think once or twice a week—the the, the would sail out to the Irish Sea a bit and dump everything <laughs> dump. and come back in. <laughs> but it, it just shows you why there were such issues, you know. And there's and there's also, you know, again looking at the censuses, you you see, you know, that there's there's pig farms sometimes beside these tenements, mm-hmm. and there there's problems with milk. You know, that's a that's a huge issue with typhoid.
0: Milk people keeping livestock in the back of tenement blocks. Like to us, that just sounds unimaginable. Uh, but the milk is a huge problem; it's contributing massively to the infant mortality rate, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, he, he's 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 a very noble character, Cameron. I mean, he, he never allows his own politics to interfere in the job at hand. You know, he opposes the 1916 Rising like himself in the house. The housekeeper are out handing sandwiches and cups of tea to young English soldiers as they march into Dublin. Yet he goes to Francock in Wales. He goes to the internment camp in Wales where the rebels are being kept, and he inspects their health and their conditions there. So, so Cameron, he's motivated by a genuine concern uh, for public health, and he's, he's a rare example of someone in Dublin Corporation at that time who has very noble commitments to the very poor people of Dublin, often people who didn't vote, didn't have the right to vote in the early 20th century, uh, but he, he maintains this, this
1: great sense of compassion towards them. Mm. But because of these health problems, these, these issues, because... It Although it's mostly confined to these, uh, you know, these working class areas as we we've talked about, but you know, I think in the eighteen seventies there's there's a, an epidemic in, in Raglan Road, so it's you know that it's mm. spreading to there sometimes. But this is as a result of some of these problems that are going on in the city and, and Dublin's demise. You have a lot of professionals moving out to these new yeah. suburbs, so you, you see the growth of rat mines, of Pembroke or what's now uh, Ballsbridge. You um, and it, that's very much where the professionals are going. Yeah. But then you have Cantarf and Drumcondra, where mm-hmm. uh, let's say the, the the petty bourgeois are going uh, more and more. But and, and and you also see the development of the railway suburbs. So the Blackrock, the Kingstown, mm-hmm. what what we now know as Dunleary, even Bray, and and I suppose you do see it with the working class in Kilmainham, more so yeah. with, with with the trains, and so. Also, it's important to talk about how Dublin has has been linked around the country by this trail network. And there are good houses being built in the city. Uh, The problem
0: is they're just beyond the reach of the very poor. You know, you have the likes of the Dublin Artisan Dwelling Company. They're hugely important in the story of Dublin. They kind of burst onto the stage in the 1860s. And they're, they're building basically homes for the working classes. But the problem is they're building homes basically for the skilled working classes.
1: The, the artisans.
0: artisan. The, it's, in, it's all in the name, you know, in places like Stony Batter. Uh, and the problem is that the the rent is, is just too high. Joseph O'Brien has written quite a lot about them. He says that by 1900, they built about 2,500 separate dwellings, mainly in the Harold's Cross area. So my favorite example of their work, actually, and listeners are probably familiar with it, uh, the beautiful apartments in Temple Bar, built by the Artisan Dwelling Company but the, the rent is just too high. They're not for a general labourer. Other people that are building houses, famously there's the Ivy Trust, uh, established in 1890 by the Guinness family, and Edward Cecil Guinness. He certainly had plenty of money to play with, Lord Ivy. I think he retired at 40 years old, the richest man Ireland had ever seen, having floated Guinness on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and Guinness did remarkable work, especially around the Bull Alley area, you know, historically a very, very poor area. Uh, and what they built there included a lodging house, public baths, a recreational building, the Guinness family were very much a unionist family uh, and people have written about this uh, they call it a, a unionist an enclave of unionist social reform in a decaying nationalist city but again, that wasn't for everyone that was largely for Guinness workers alone so between the Artisan Dwelling Company and the Ivy Trust there was better housing being provided in Dublin, It was being provided for a small minority of the working class and of course if you fell into that general labour cat- category you're in serious trouble because you were depending either on the mercy of landlords uh, or Dublin Corporation who
1: history shows are not particularly good at building houses mm. and yeah when you, when you look at who's living in the city and who's living in the suburbs then you, you see this kind of class divide becoming more and more apparent so you have the professionals living in the suburbs you have the unskilled predominantly in the city you also have the domestic servants in the suburbs because they're, they're providing mm-hmm. all these uh, these services for their their professional, uh, for the professional families are the, the the managers, the employers, um, and so you see the the population of the city is declining from the eighteen fifties, but the population of the suburbs mm-hmm. is rising enormously. And it, I just picked out a, an advert from the Irish Times from 1907 which just talks about how. They were, these suburbs were being sold. Uh, so they're talking about the Cowper Gardens estate up around Rathmines and they said you could settle down in one of these charming villas with the knowledge that a better choice of home in the Dublin district is impossible. So it talks about being able to view the Dublin mountains, the nearby golf links and it possesses all these advantages in addition to being close to the, the central uh, to the city you know, you're within minutes, but, but with train or tram. So, you know, Dublin is developing in that sense, too. What's happening in the city,
0: though, as, as the kind of middle class and more affluent are moving out into the suburbs, is that around the same time, actually, in the late 19th century, Dublin corporations start building houses. Uh, and these proved to be a disastrous failure. You know, the first corporation houses are built in the 1880s on what we now call Ben Borb Street. Uh, and they're just disastrous. You know, Murray Fraser writes that they... They're built at such a low sanitary and constructional standard that they needed constant work. And they're also built in an area of the city that is notorious, you know, right on top of the royal barracks. Where there's soldiers, there's prostitution. Uh, and Ben Burb Street is an area which is in, in, in really, really bad condition. And is not a place that's fit to build corporate housing. Then they follow it up with an even worse scheme, which is corporation buildings. Uh, built in what one social commentator at the time calls the worst sink of inequity in the British Isles. That's the area around Montgomery Street. You know, That's the Monta. Uh, and that area has a horrific reputation from the 1860s on as the kind of premier red-light district, only a stone's throw from O'Connell Street, but kind of a million miles away in another sense. Uh, that was a totally disastrous project. One judge would claim in the 1930s during a famous case, he said... Corporation buildings are unfit for human habitation and no Christian or civilised person could ever emerge from being raised within them. So, the criticism that's being made of open Corporation in the late 19th century is a fair criticism that they're
1: in the business of clearing slums only to build new slums on top of them. And mm. I suppose, come on, touching on what you mentioned just there, this area, you know, this Monto area, so um, around you know, well they kept changing the names of the streets to, to try and deter people from going or, or try to change um, its location. But it was very much around this area, around Talbot Street, what we know today is Talbot Street and, and Railway Street, between those areas. And, you know, it was estimated in the 1870s, around there was around 1,700 prostitutes in Dublin. So this is not something that's, you know, completely hidden. It's hard to hide. As in once they, you know, I think mm. in the around 1900 they tried to clear out their, an order came from above that they did to, to clear out the monto but what happened was the women started going towards Sackville Street yeah Grafton
0: Street became a place where you could pick up prostitutes and
1: I mean this was
0: the Victorian times people were horrified by the sight of uh, women selling themselves on Grafton Street so out of sight out of mind was definitely the attitude of some people without a shadow of a doubt but that the corporation thought that was a fit place the house people it's just remarkable and how do you keep children away from all of this when you put giant gates in the complex? Anyone you talk to that lived in corporation buildings, their memory are these giant gates that led into the complex. And what happened beyond the gates, children were not meant to see, but of course they did. It was right on their doorstep. Mm.
1: And these places are, are visited by you know many of the famous figures in Dublin history. So you have obviously James Joyce you know yeah of course now we've James
0: Joyce Street there today which is quite ironic
1: yeah and a statue of him at the beginning exactly someone
0: that frequented the Montau himself and made it you know a notorious place through Night Town in Ulysses and he's permanently commemorated there now they tell us that Prince Albert Edward lost his virginity there though I'm not entirely sure it's true it's a great great Dublin story Uh, Oliver St. John Gogarty is another figure that's to be found there frequently yeah. uh, though he claims it's just for a late night drink yeah. it's a place you could find the drink at any hour of the day or the night but it's its a place that people are, are, are drifting in and out of yeah. Phil Shanahan's Paul Putch is there becomes a well
1: known rendezvous point for IRA members uh, like the area is not only seedy it's seditious mm. and well you mentioned St John Gogart so he, he wrote a few lines about Joyce and his visits to Monto he, he, he said there is a young fellow named Joyce who possesses a sweet tenor voice he goes down to the kips with a psalm on his lips and bid the harlots rejoice <laughs> and I suppose this you know we, we see the word kips here but there are there are various terms used that, that mm. still come up today I suppose you know when I say that to people they often say oh, that's where maybe kip come, mm. comes from and mm. you hear it in French as well bordello you know mm. the, the same kind of connotation um and, and you had various names for these, uh, you know, fallen women, nymphs of the night. Um, you know, and the, there was um, yeah, women of bad character, unfortunate women, destitute women, night walkers, nymphs of the pave, the fallen. And you also had the, the let's say, the prominence of these Magdalene laundries and the, these... These areas you know, we talked about Henrietta Street, but there there was on that street there was a building dedicated to, to these so called fallen women to try and repent from them um, and, but they were very much a prominent part of the city. And um, You had the Lock Hospital
0: yeah. on Transend Street for example, which was, which was obviously caring for these women. But yeah they were they, they were a, a noticeable part of the workforce, if you will. I mm-hmm. know uh, it was. I think it was Frederick Engels who said, "Not the oldest, not the oldest profession, the oldest oppression." But whoever one chooses to view it, they were a noticeable part of the Dublin workforce, yeah. and uh, they're an important part of the story
1: of health in the city, without a doubt. Yeah, there's huge issues, as you said, with the Lough Hospital. That, you know, because on top of some of the diseases that, that we mentioned, you know, the, the, because of the sanitary aspects, there's all these issues, and you you also hear. Um, you know some stories about what um, how, how they tried to get around this these, these women so Terry Fagan who who's from the area from um, I think brought up in the corporation buildings mm. and, and, and the kind of leading light of the Dublin North inner city folklore project <clears throat> talks about how uh, in his book and also you know he, he also does walks around the city for those lucky enough to ever attend them you know he talks about how they sometimes gave freebies to medical students in order for for them to write kind of certificates saying that, that they ensure that these women have no issues, no diseases and whereas this, the medical students didn't know that and they just wanted their um, to go without paying.
0: What's often overlooked is, is what closes Monto. You know, it's not a, it's not a health initiative on the part of the city. You know, it's largely uh, the endeavours of, of Frank Duff, the Legion of Mary, you know, a quiet, unassuming civil servant uh, who opens the Santa Maria hostel on, on Harcourt Street and he organizes the famous raid on Montau uh, by William Murphy, the guard commissioner, which, which you know it happens in in, in I think it's nineteen twenty four, post independence. Uh, and it's closed down in a spectacular style, but it, it's a layman's religious organisation that puts the pressure on Montub rather than the authorities themselves. So that's another interesting dimension of the story. Irish na- Irish nationalists will be set took a very amusing kind of attitude towards venereal disease. They kind of regarded it as uh, a byproduct of Britain's presence in Ireland. You, know, you often read in Irish nationalist newspapers that they're laying the blame. Uh, at the feet of the various garrisons across the city and they point out that venereal disease is rife in places not only like Dublin but in parts of Kildare and Sligo and Cork and Limerick, wherever you have a British garrison presence but venereal disease rates in 1923 and 1924 post-Irish independence remain surprisingly high Uh, It's interesting that when Monto is eventually closed, it's not any great health initiative on the part of the city or the state. It's a layman's religious organisation. It's the pressure that's brought to bear by the Legion of Mary. And the fact that Frank Duff, who's kind of quite unassuming civil servant, uh, is able to bring the Garda Commissioner, William Murphy, on side and is able to force the closure of Monto, it's it's indicative of what is to come, really, in post-independence Ireland
1: and the deep role, the important role that kind of Catholic ideas will play there.